0: Well, if you will turn in your Bibles to the book of James, as I say, we are finishing up James today, James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13, and when you found that, would you stand, and we'll read together. If you're using a Brown Pew Bible in front of you, it's on page 856. Stand together, and we will read this passage before we dig into it. James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. James says, "Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. He uh, will make the sick person well. That the Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven." My brothers, if one of you should wander away from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is God's word. You may be seated. How many of you have ever been in that awful scenario before where you're desperate to find something. Uh, You're missing your keys, uh, wallet, passport, maybe your car in the parking lot, maybe a a child in the shopping mall, whatever it is, and it is just nowhere. It's nowhere to be found. You've checked every room, you've emptied every pocket, looked in every drawer, and it's just nowhere. Only then to find that thing a moment later, right at the last minute, found it in the most unlikely place, the, most, the last place you would have ever thought to even look. But actually not because it's unlikely, but really because it was so obvious, you didn't even think to look there. Like, you know, you've spent an hour pulling out every drawer in your house looking for your passport only to have your wife's face. I'm like, oh, well, did you think to look in the uh, passport protectors we bought last year for the trip? No, no, I didn't think to look there. Or, or maybe you're, you're looking everywhere in your house for your kid, you're calling them, and you're like five seconds away from calling the police, only to go into their room, and they're just sitting on their bed, happily playing with the headphones in, looking at you like, what? Why are you sweating? It's, it happens to all of us. Um, as I said, you know, we we're, we're been going through this series on the book of James, which we're ending today, and we've entitled this series, Demonstrated Faith demonstrated faith, and because we'd finished a series just prior to that on spiritual disciplines and talking about how we grow our faith, it just seemed like a perfect follow-up to look at James, which is all about putting that faith into practice, and the consistent message of James all the way through has been, faith that is truly genuine will demonstrate itself in our godly actions. It's not enough just to say you believe things, say you have faith, show me you do, act like it, and I'll believe what you're telling me. Well, as we conclude our series this morning, the last area that James is going to speak about as it relates to demonstrating the reality of our faith is prayer. Prayer. Now, James has been talking about prayer actually all through his letter, implicitly and explicitly. We'll, we'll look at a few of those places as we talk about this this morning. But this last section, he really focuses in on prayer extensively. And so we're going to focus in our time now as we end this series through James, looking specifically at faith demonstrated through our prayers. And I know that oftentimes overstatement is something that pastors do. They, they like to make these big, broad statements. I hope you know by now that's, that's not who I am. I, I don't like to do that. But it's going to sound like overstatement now when I say to you, given where we are as a church right now in the life of our church family, standing, as it were, at the, the starting gate of a whole new season of life, with obstacles and opportunities before us, this message this morning could not be more important or timely for us. Because we've said as a church that prayer is and needs to continue to be the foundation of everything we hope to accomplish, both individually as well as a church family. That's that's what we've said. And, And here, rediscovering really the true power that we have available to us to accomplish those things, as we cry out to God, as we, as we express our dependence on Him in prayer, that's exactly what James is covering here in this passage this morning. So that's why it just feels like so perfect and timely for where we are. But here's the problem for many of us, myself included. When we think about those scenarios that we just were talking about at the beginning, much like our search for missing things, although... Prayer, it really is the, the foundation of everything we hope to do. It's, it's this limitless source of, of power and of communion with the living God, although it's all those things. Prayer is often the very last thing we go to when we're sick, in trouble, when we're happy, or when we're in need of any kind. Rather than being our immediate go-to, prayer is often the thing that we go to only when everything else that we've tried has failed. All our human resources and our abilities to fix things have failed. Then we, know, we, we say those really awful words of, I guess all there's left to do now is just pray. Really? Really? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons for that, but I think one of the main reasons that I see, and the sad reason for it, is that really prayer for a lot of us has become nothing more than just a religious duty. It's just a religious exercise, something we do. We check the box of prayer before meals, prayer before that trip, whatever it is. But we don't. We don't even really expect anything to come from it. And in our passage this morning, James is going to tell his readers here as well as you and I today that for the one who has faith in God, it ought to be the exact opposite, actually. Prayer ought to be the very first thing we go to. Actually, not just in hard times, but when things are good as well. In all circumstances, we need to go to God first in prayer, expecting. Expecting that we will be heard by our Father in heaven and that he will hear us and act on what we've prayed for. And along with seeing the power of God, both in physical healing, spiritual healing, James is going to tell us here that there's also a community building, a community healing benefit that comes from prayer. Which, again, given where we are in the life of our church, we've said healing as a church family, that's something we want to see happen as well. So again, how much more timely could this be as we think about prayer and what it accomplishes and what it means? So, in order to see how James wants to help us this morning, really correct that, that wrongly prioritized view of prayer, I want us to look at our passage this morning in just three ways. We're going to talk about the forgotten priority of prayer, the forgotten power of prayer, and then finally, the forgotten community of prayer, the forgotten power of the forgotten priority and the forgotten community of prayer. So if you close your Bibles, would you open them again to James chapter 5, beginning at verse 13? I want you to follow along with me if you can, and we'll, we'll dig into this last section together. So let's start by looking at the forgotten priority of prayer. Forgotten priority. Now, this is going to be the, the very shortest section of these three, but I think it's worth drawing our attention to because James draws our attention to it and we're thinking about demonstrating our faith through prayers. Look at the way James begins this last section in verse 13 and 14 again. Verse 13, is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray. Now in those two short verses James describes three different potential scenarios in life. Uh, trouble, happiness, and sickness did you notice as you read through those in each one of them what's the first thing James said that we ought to go to what, what's the thing we ought to do first he says we should pray prayer is the very first priority that he says we should go to And I pointed this out uh, in another message, but whenever the Bible gives a lot of varied examples that seem extreme or maybe in this case contrasting, a lot of times it's referring to a collective whole. It's trying to say it's it's bigger than this actually. So here, yeah, James gives us three examples, but that's not an exhaustive list. It's meant to say, "Hey, hey, in all circumstances, good, bad, whatever, the first priority, the first thing you should go to is to pray. Now, in that second example of uh, singing when we're happy, maybe initially that doesn't sound like prayer, but we've got to remember James is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And for them, singing prayers, it's, it's very much a part of their culture and tradition. I mean, the entire book of Psalms is a proverbial songbook of prayers to God. But as we think about our own lives, let's bring it here to 2016. How about, how about you? How about me? Is is, is this something that you would say is your consistent, regular practice? First thing, happy, sad, good, whatever the circumstance is, first thing you think about is, I've got to bring it to God in prayer. I don't know about you, but it's certainly not mine. It's something I'm totally seeking to grow in more and more, of, of making that my consistent practice, the first thing to bring it to God, and it's not for a lot of us. And the reason is, because I think, again, don't we have that same attitude to prayer that I was talking about a minute ago? Prayer, is, it's right near the very bottom of our priority list. I mean, we read James 5.13 saying, is anyone in trouble? And we think, he says, the first thing you should do is, if there's some situation you're in trouble, you should probably get a lawyer. You're going to need help with that. You should probably call your mom, talk it out with her, talk through the scenarios, uh, uh, get some advice from other people, uh, uh, put it out on Facebook, see if some people can help you out. Oh, you know, and, and sure, you should probably pray. You know, ask God to see what he thinks. It's, it's right near the bottom of the things that we go to. What James is telling us here is, Yes, okay, yes, uh, make wise choices, protect your family, protect yourself. Uh, Yeah, you ought to celebrate when things are awesome. But if prayer truly is communion with our Father in heaven, if it truly is something that's powerful and effective that accomplishes things, it ought to be the very first thing we go to in whatever scenario that comes. Good, bad, blissful, sorrowful, whatever. Bringing it immediately to God is our first priority. That's what James says we ought to do, and by God's grace, that's something I would love us all to grow in, to make that our regular practice, to make it the very first thing that we go to. Now, maybe that sounds right to you. Maybe you already knew that, or or maybe you're hearing that for the first time, but I'm willing to bet that if you already knew you were supposed to do that, you don't. (laughs) And even if you're hearing that for the first time, you think, that's right, you probably won't do it. And the reason for that is actually because of the second problem we have when it comes to prayer. Namely, we don't think it actually does anything. We don't believe prayer really accomplishes anything. So we don't prioritize prayer because we see it just, again, it's just that religious duty. It's not something powerful and effective like James says. We don't see it that way. So now I want us to look at our second point here, the forgotten power of prayer forgotten power of prayer i was a father with two young daughters i probably see a lot of films that you would probably never pay money to go to or 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 see on netflix or go on itunes whatever Uh, that's just a privilege that i have uh (laughs) maybe one of the uh films recently that uh uh, i had the privilege of seeing was an epic really coming-of-age drama entitled kung fu panda 3 Amazing film, really. Uh, I I know already right now I'm going to lose a lot of you for a second, but just try to follow along with what I'm saying. It does have a point. Uh, In this film, Po, who is the Kung Fu Panda, Po, he is just being reunited with his father. He's never met in his life, and they are now traveling to a secret village in the mountains where all the pandas live in order for Po to go there and be trained to be a master of chi. Because apparently ancient scrolls have told them that all pandas are, are chi masters. And Poe, he needs to become a chi master in order to defeat the villain of the film, who is Kai. Now, doesn't that sound interesting? You probably want to go see it. But, so what? Okay. Why am I telling you that? Well, what this has to do with prayer and the forgotten power of prayer is that later on in the film, spoiler alert right now, if you plan to see this film, plug your ears, Later on in this film, Poe discovers that although the pandas were chi masters centuries ago, now nobody even knows a thing about chi at all. They they couldn't tell him a thing, let alone train him to become a master of it. They're looking at him like, what? You want us to do what? Everyone's totally forgotten this power that they, they used to know about, they used to have. And how that relates to you and I today and our attitudes towards prayer is that for many of us, at worst, God uh, healing people, God doing miracles through prayer, at worst, it's mythology. It's fairy tale. We we, we don't think that that happens at all. And at best, for a lot of us, God working powerfully through prayer is something we think, "Yeah, yeah, sure, God used to do that. You know, We read about that in the ancient scrolls of the Bible. That's, that's interesting, but he doesn't, he doesn't act that way today. He doesn't do that, way, that kind of things today. And so God's power working through prayer for a lot of us is the same thing. It's a totally forgotten power. We don't even think to access it. We don't even think to look there when we're in need. So we don't prioritize prayer because we see it as impractical. Why? Why would I make prayer even fourth or fifth on the list, let alone first? doesn't really accomplish anything, at least not anymore. But when you read James's description of prayer here, doesn't he say the exact opposite? Doesn't he have a very different view of prayer and what it accomplishes? Look at his description in verse 14 and 15 again with me. It says, Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Now, three times there in verse 15, James repeats this really unashamedly confident refrain, will, will, really? The the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. And it's right at that point for many of us where things start to get really raw and real because of our own experience of prayer. Uh, 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 much more than, as we, as we hear James's confident assertions, much more than just sort of a winking dismissal of, no, he won't. Many of us would respond instead, maybe through bitter tears of sadness. No, he didn't. He didn't. And in the face of crushing circumstances, what, whatever those are for you, with unanswered prayers littered all around you on the floor, we, we, we hear James' words with suspicious realism and maybe even with anger because our experience is, yeah, I did pray and it didn't work. Nothing happened. And we look back on, on, on his confident assertions like an adult who has these wistful remembrances of when we used to believe that Santa was the one who filled our stocking or we used to wish on a star and believe dreams came true. Now it's like James is just rubbing salt in those childhood wounds of lost innocence. So our own experience of prayers and the disappointment we've experienced is one of the things that makes us forget the power of prayer. Another thing is just bad teaching. At some point in our lives, some of us may have had a church experience where someone took this exact passage of Scripture and told us a prayer of faith is a guarantee that God is going to give you exactly what you prayed for. Name it and claim it. You tell God what you want. You pray in faith. He's going to give it to you. And if you didn't get it, sorry. I guess you didn't have enough faith. I guess you weren't righteous enough. Can I just say... Confidently and, and, and with great compassion, that is, that is so wrong. That is, that is wicked and abusive and not at all what the Bible teaches about prayer. Consider what James says, if you're using the Pew Bible, even just on the, the, the column beside you in chapter 4 and verse 13 about confident boasting. It talks about confidently boasting and, and what this is what I'm going to do next year and, and God's going to bless me like this and this is what I'm going to do. James says, why would you boast like that? Why would you have these confident assertions about what God's going to do? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Truth is, in many of those situations where we've prayed and, and God hasn't answered the way that we wanted, it's not a faith problem at all. What it is is a knowledge problem. We have a knowledge problem because what we need to constantly remind ourselves of, if God is really God, He knows more than we do. He knows better than us what we need. That's that's why James went on in chapter 4 and verse 15 to say, whatever we present to God, whatever we bring to Him in prayer, we ought to follow it by saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. It should also do our hearts good to remember that both the Apostle Paul with his thorn in the flesh, even Jesus Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed for things and were told no by the Father. Now, I know that's a bit more complex when we're talking about Jesus, but it should remind us that's just how, how foolish and arrogant of us to just to shake our fist at God when he doesn't answer our prayers the way that we wanted him to. Because in our human wisdom, we, we knew what, what we needed and what he should have done in this moment, and he didn't do it. If God is truly God, then he knows better than us. And if he's truly Lord of our lives, then he's got to be able to say no Actually, you don't need that. What you need is this. I think Tim Keller is right here when he says God will either give you what you ask for in prayer or give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. (laughs) Let's absorb that for a second. It's so true, but in the moment, it's very hard to receive. He'll either give us what we asked for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Okay, then, so what, what is this prayer of faith? Okay, if it's, if it's not a guarantee that God's going to do whatever we ask him, but it's also something we're, we've forgotten and we're supposed to access this power of prayer, okay, well then, how does this work? Okay, well, let me give you a few thoughts which maybe will help bring some clarity. First of all, the Bible tells us Jesus is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says the Bible says God doesn't change like the shifting shadow. He's always the same. So the first part of a prayer of faith is understanding and believing that what we read in the Bible about how God operates, the way he operates powerfully through prayer is true. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the things we read in the Bible are true? Then transfer that same belief to say if God's the same, if he hasn't changed at all, then that means he has the same power today to do exactly the things that we see him doing here. That's the first part of the prayer of faith, just trusting, believing that God really does still today have the power that we believe he has back here in the Bible. Second thing, if you were here uh, earlier on in the series, you'll remember in chapter 1, James also talked about believing prayer, believing and not doubting. He says, you must, when you ask God for things, don't doubt, because if you have already, already decided he's not going to do it, what's the point of even asking him? But we also said that's not about having perfect faith either, because none of us does. We all have a failing faith. We all have a faith like that father in Mark 9 who wants Jesus to heal his son, and he says, yeah, yeah, I do believe that you can heal him. Help my unbelief. We all have faltering faith like that at times. So the first part to say about this prayer of faith is that it's a trusting, hopeful faith. It's believing and and, and even bringing along our questions and doubts and just saying, okay, I don't know, but I'm coming to you. I'm I'm bringing this to you because I believe you're the only place I can go. Trusting that he is able to do what we ask. And then the second half of that is just doing what James says in chapter 4. Because there, do you remember, he said, one of the reasons we don't see God act this way, we don't see him powerfully work this way, is because we stopped asking. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. We've forgotten this power of prayer, so we don't even think to access it anymore. So James says, ask, ask, believe that he can do it and ask. But this trusting, hopeful prayer of bringing things to God, it also has to have a submissive element to it. It's trusting faith, but it's also submissive faith, one that expresses our hopes and needs to God. We bring them to him, but then submits to the truth that actually he knows what's best so we're not telling God what to do we're not saying you do this and then you're good it's coming to him and saying I believe you can do this but I'm trusting that you know best it's the same prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane when he said nevertheless not what I will but what you will it's the same prayer that the, uh, the Hebrew slaves in Daniel uh, said to King Nebuchadnezzar when he was about to throw them in the furnace they said our God is able to deliver us from your hand, and he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to trust him and not you. That's the attitude of prayer, what a prayer of faith truly is, a confident hope. He really can accomplish what I'm asking him to do. But then submitting to the fact that we don't know everything. We don't always know what's right. Submitting to his will in whatever it is we brought him to, trusting him to do what's best, that his gifts are good and perfect. That's the forgotten priority, the forgotten power of prayer. The last thing I want to show you from our passage is the forgotten community of prayer. One of the interesting things that stands out to me as I read this, I don't know if it stood out to you, was all this other stuff that James adds on to what he says about God healing, God healing this sick person especially. Look at verse 15 there. After talking about this prayer of faith, faith that will heal this person, will raise them up. Look what he says then after that. End of verse 15. If he's sinned, he'll be forgiven. Now what what does that have to do with God physically healing? That seems about as relevant as uh, Kung Fu Panda. It's like, well, why, why is he talking now about sins and being forgiven? I mean... Even then, he doesn't even stop talking about it. It might just be a random miss, but he keeps going on in verse 16, talking about confessing our sins to one another and, 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 and seeing God forgive our our sins. And it's like, why doesn't he drop this? Well, as misplaced as that sounds to us, I think what James is doing here is drawing the reader's attention to what in early church they've just learned about Jesus, they've all come into this faith in Jesus, a story that maybe they would have all heard and known about Jesus in his earthly ministry. There's a number of different instances where it happens, but in Luke 5, one that stands out in particular is there's a bunch of guys that want Jesus to heal their lame friend, Now, not a boring friend, he actually can't walk. And they bring this friend to Jesus, but they, they can't get to him because Jesus is in a house teaching and it's just packed in there and they're trying to get him in. Excuse me, excuse me, nobody's moving. So they go up on the roof, cut a hole in the roof of the house. I don't know whose house that was, but they, they cut a hole and they lower them down right in front of Jesus where he's teaching. Totally, I, I just would have loved to have been there in this situation because it must have been unbelievable. They lower him down in front of Jesus. It's pretty obvious, I think. They're like, okay, <laughs> Pretty obvious what they want him to do. you remember what Jesus says to the man first? Friend, your sins are forgiven. What? (laughs) Why? Why would he? We wanted you to. And then, of course, remember the religious guys, they start freaking out because they're like, well, he can't say that. That's, That's something only God can forgive sins. And then it says, Jesus, knowing what their thoughts are, says to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or pick up your mat and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on earth. And he turns to the man and says, rise up and walk, and he does. So, I think what James is trying to say there, first of all, he's wanting to say, don't, don't immediately conclude, don't, don't say sin is necessarily why you're sick, why you're, you're lame, why you're experiencing difficulties. That's not always going to be the case. We know that because when Jesus tells that man his sins are forgiven, he doesn't get up. He needs Jesus to heal him physically first. So there's not always this one-to-one connection of sin, that you must be being punished. You went to that rated R movie, so now wheelchair for six months. It doesn't work like that but I think there is, at the same time, a connection. James is trying to show us there is a relationship. It's just not the one we think. Because in the midst of all this stuff about physical healing, James is also talking about all these community elements about what's going on. He's talking about, hey, come together. Call the elders to come and and pray for you, which, by the way, don't, don't misunderstand that. The elders of a church are not more spiritual or more godly than anybody else. We don't have special powers. We're not anything like that. In this situation, calling the elders would have been going to someone's house. Okay, this is not in a church service. The elders of the church would have just gone as representatives of the whole body, and they would have sent them to pray over that person. But it's nothing special. Uh, God doesn't hear the prayer of elders more than he hears your prayers. It's just the same. That's why he tells them right after that, you pray for each other, you confess to one another. It's not just elders who have this power. So I think what you could say is James is implying this. I think he's trying to show a connection of, in the same way that physical impairment uh, hinders our life as individuals, hidden, unconfessed sin in the life of a church hinders the life and health of a church family is why he's saying, hey, hey, come to one another. Pray for each other as individuals that you be healed, but come to each other confessing, revealing your sins to each other and receiving the forgiveness and the healing that comes from God as a community. The forgiveness that can only come from Jesus there. And I think we have to understand it that way because if we don't, we're never going to understand what James means in verse 19 and 20. It makes no sense otherwise. Look at what he says there. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. So the only way that makes sense is if James is calling them as a community of faith to encourage one another, to root out the areas of, of unhealth in the church as a whole. Root out the areas of, of, of sin that are hidden And create a culture of confession. A culture where we come to each other with our weaknesses. Say, I I need help. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm failing here and I need your support. I need you to come alongside me. Where we draw one another back from the edge of destruction and into a place of closer fellowship with both God and each other. Because you know what doesn't draw a community of faith closer together? Everybody pretending every Sunday like we got this Christianity thing nailed. It doesn't help anybody for us to come in here with our masks like we got it all together it's not we're never going to grow that way we're never going to see healing as a community when we're hiding from one another so James is saying when we do that it actually alienates us it pushes us further away and when we want to be a community that truly experiences healing and growth what we need to do is come to each other and say hey I'm not okay I need your support Hey, I'm struggling in this area. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? And we'll see the healing that can come through our powerful prayers when we do that. Because the Bible knows, and James knows here, that when we're vulnerable with one another, when we confess to one another our areas of brokenness, our areas of need, we, we rip the cover off where all those hidden cancers are that are quietly killing us. I think that's exactly why James brings up Elijah. Elijah. It seems like such a random thing, but in verse 17 there, when he says, Elijah was a man like us, and he talks about how Elijah was praying. Now, in one sense, James is trying to overcome our fears uh, and our reticence to pray for for things like this. He's saying, hey, listen, Elijah, yeah, he was this prophet you all know and respect, but he was just somebody like you and me. He wasn't some super X-Men kind of superpower guy. He's flesh and blood like you and me, and look what God did. Look what God accomplished through his powerful, submissive prayer. He stopped the rain for three and a half years. The implication is, so can you, when you have the same faith in God and come to him with a trusting, submissive prayer. But I think beyond that, James is also referring to what was the overall mission of Elijah in the life and the history of Israel as a people. Do you remember what it was? God sent Elijah to the people of Israel in order to call them back to call them away from destruction, idolatry, and syncretism, to call them back to faithfulness to God, to be honest about the cancer of idolatry that was destroying them as a nation. Confess their sin to God who was waiting and ready to heal them as a nation. Remember what Elijah's prayer was as he was on Mount Carmel there waiting for God to send fire down on the sacrifice in that epic confrontation with the prophets of Baal? His prayer was, answer me, O Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back to you again. That was Elijah's whole purpose. And he's saying that's one of the purposes of prayer in our community of faith, to turn one another back again to God, to the place where we can find healing, the place where we can find growth and faith again. Something that's a big part of the way we demonstrate our faith in God through prayers is not simply just prioritizing prayer or believing again in the power of prayer, but seeking to heal and grow all of our faith corporately as a church. Confessing our need for God and for each other as a community and then seeking and, I pray, seeing the spiritual healing that can only come from God as we do that. Final obstacle we close here for many of us in demonstrating our faith through God in prayer is that second half of verse 16 Now, some of what we said comes from the uh, poor teaching but look again what James says second half of verse 16 the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective and a lot of us read that and right away we think oh okay. I guess that doesn't include me I mean, sure, okay, maybe some famous prophet of God, some guy who's written the Bible, okay, maybe, but I'm not righteous. (laughs) I fail all the time. I I still sin all the time. Oh, that must be why God doesn't answer my prayers. I'm not righteous enough. (laughs) What I would want to say to you is that if you are trusting in your salvation for Jesus Christ, If you have faith in God to rescue you from your sin and to unite you into a relationship with God right now through faith in him, yes, you are. Yes, you are. You see, uh, all through the New Testament we read about this, the Apostle Paul doesn't stop talking about it. Places like Philippians 3, which I'm going to read for you. Apostle Paul, if you didn't know, before he came to faith in Christ, he thought he was a pretty religious guy up-and-coming Pharisee, he'd checked all the boxes of what it means to be a righteous person, but when he finally met the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, totally transformed his view about what righteousness was, what it meant to stand before a holy God. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3. He's talking about all his accomplishments of what he thought made him righteous, but then he says, "...but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What more I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God by faith. He says elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What the Bible is pretty clear about is that the only righteous person who ever lived, the only truly righteous person was Jesus. So that's not going to be you anyway. But First thing, which is pretty amazing to read about in places like Romans 8, uh, Hebrews 7, is that that truly righteous Son of God is alive and is in heaven right now, the Bible tells us, praying for you. Praying for you right now. He's praying for me right now in heaven. And you better believe that the prayers of that righteous man are powerful and effective for you. God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life, and he's doing it right now as hard as it seems or as good as it seems. But the Bible is also pretty clear that because Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law, because he died in our place and rose again, that now by faith we actually become righteous in the eyes of God. His perfect righteousness is credited to us so that although we do still sin, although we do still fail and and don't get it right again and again, God looks at us now and sees Jesus' perfect obedience not our failing, fumbling disobedience. That means in the eyes of God, you truly are that righteous man. You truly are that righteous woman, which means also your prayers truly are powerful and effective when we pray according to the will of God. The prayer of the righteous man, the prayer of the righteous woman is what you are praying when you are a son or a daughter of God. Every time you pray, and those prayers are powerful and effective. I said we're going to go and switch our time of prayer to the end. We're going to go and pray together now. We're going to do something which we don't do every Sunday. Frankly, we, I, don't, I can't think of the last time we've ever done this. And it's going to press some of you in a weird way. <laughs> because we're going to pray right now for healing as a church. Pray for healing for individuals. And some of you, I know you're thinking, finally, I've been waiting for this. And others of you are thinking, I went to a Baptist church because I didn't want to experience things like this. I didn't think we did that there. If, if this is what the Bible is telling us to do, then why, why wouldn't we do that? Why would that be weird? So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. I want us to focus our prayers this morning all around prayer of, for healing and prayers of confession. Confession in the sense of bringing to God our doubts, bringing to God saying, God, forgive me. I've pursued every other avenue in this thing I'm going to accept you. Forgive me. God, I've tried to do this over and over again in my own strength and failed, and I've, and I've judged you because of it. Forgive me. Or even as a church family, God, I've, I've harbored bitterness against that person or this person, and I need to go and make that right. Forgive me. And we're also going to pray for each other for our healing. I'm going to ask some of you, if you'd be willing, if you this morning have come here today, you have some physical ailment, some uh, uh, emotional ailment, some burden on you that you would like prayed for. I'm going to ask you in a minute to stand up and for the people around you to come around and pray for you. Maybe that person isn't here. Like you want to pray for them? Maybe that's a son or a daughter, or, or a loved one, or a relative, or a friend that you want prayed for. Let's—we're going to call out prayers for them this morning, asking God to heal those people, believing that He can do it, even as we pray right now. But trusting and submitting our will to Him, knowing God's going to do what He's going to do. We don't—we don't tell God what to do. So we're going to find the balance. We're not going to ramp ourselves up into some emotional frenzy, but neither are we going to sit on our hands. And, and not trust God to really do things. And we're just going to let God do what He wants to do today. So, here's how this is going to go. We're going to pray together. We're going to pray for each other. Those of you who stand, if you'd be willing and the people come around you to pray, I'm going to come and I'm going to touch a bit of oil on your head. There's nothing sacred or, or amazing about this. This is olive oil from Safeway. Okay, There's nothing magical about it. Anointing with oil in the Bible is always about setting someone apart for service to God, and about it's it's symbolically representing the spirit of God's presence. That's all. If you'd be willing, I'm going to come and touch your head with some oil, and we're going to pray for you and ask God to heal you. And then we're going to let God do what he wants to do today. When we're done, we'll come forward as a church family, and we will eat together this Lord's Supper, which is all about what God did in order to bring about that healing. What it cost him in order to heal us of our sin and brokenness. It cost him his very life. So we're going to eat with thanksgiving. And I'm going to pray and we'll be done. So, I'm going to ask any of you this morning who feel led and you feel like God's speaking to your heart right now, if you'd like us to pray for you specifically, I'm going to ask you to stand right now. Then, in a moment, we'll all bow our heads. We'll pray for each other. We'll pray prayers of confession. We'll pray prayers for healing as a church family. All these things, let's come together and pray and cry out and believe God today, trusting him to do powerful things as we pray. Let's go to prayer right now.